welcome to the Data Leadership Lessons Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony J. Algman. Data is everywhere in our businesses, and it takes leadership to make the most of it. We bring you the people, stories, and lessons to help you become a data leader. Today, I'm joined by Michael Simon. Michael is the co-founder and CEO of Elucid, a data intelligence company that delivers real-time community opinion data to public and private sector leaders. Prior to founding Lucid, Michael advised organizations from global multinationals to public sector institutions to startups on data and analytics strategy. He established and managed the first of its kind in-house analytics department for Barack Obama's groundbreaking 2008 campaign for president of the United States, served in the Obama administration, and founded Haystack DNA, a data science consultancy. And I tell you, I cut half of the bio before we read that, and it is incredibly exciting to have you on the show. Michael, welcome to the show. Please take a moment to give our audience a little bit more background uh, on you and in your bio and how data plays a role in your career. Yeah, Anthony, I, I, I come to data and analytics leadership a little bit sideways. Um, I... Uh, I'm a lawyer by training. Um, I had an undergraduate degree in political science and sort of gravitated towards the, the maybe the quantitative side of that liberal art. Um, went to law school and I had worked in presidential campaigns, which I found to be a really rewarding sort of startup-like uh, environment, um, where a young person with like a lot of gumption and a little bit of skill could could uh, rise uh, to, to to have authority and responsibility very quickly, which is appealing to me in the twenties. And I had found uh, the, the very first campaign that I worked on was John Kerry's campaign. Um, and I found myself in the unit that was digesting all the polling data. Uh, I was the most junior person uh, on this three-person team. And people with a lot more experience and really big decisions to make were coming to me, a you know one-year-out-of-college kid, because I was sitting in all this data and I could help make them make big decisions. Like, so where should we spend these millions of dollars on TV or I want to put the candidate on a bus trip, you know, Michigan and Ohio, where should we send them? And, and, I, and this sort of like lightning bolt struck me that um, this was a career defining moment, that being the person in possession of the data uh, that could help guide a strategy was a way to play an outsized role in sort of an early phase of my career. And, I, and honestly, that's the, that moment and that experience sort of set the path for essentially my entire career. That's so cool. And, and it's, it's got to, you know, feel, um, you know, rewarding too, to be involved in something that matters. And that's been something that I've done. I've had some public ex uh, sector experience myself, um, not worked in, in uh, the political space, but there, there has to be a thread to that as well that got you uh, going with that too. It's, it's got to feel good. So many of us data folks get kind of lost in the mix of things, having that real data uh, experience where you're, you're pushing towards a, a bigger purpose. Uh, that's got to feel good too. Absolutely. And I think that that's, that's always, I think there's people in, in politics who are motivated by um, love of the game, <laughs> love, love of politics as a sport. And there's people in politics who are motivated by a cause. And I think I'm probably, probably sit at the intersection of that Venn diagram. I do really enjoy, um, you know, the, the game, but it's, it's that purpose, that sense of purpose that motivated me to um, take part in a field that is frankly chronically underpaid. And you continue to be chronically underpaid uh, even in my adult life. So here we are. 
<laughs> yeah, well, it's it, yeah, the 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 economic structures of of uh, how yes. those kinds of roles yeah. are, are a whole <laughs> nother conversation that we'll have. But you know, and and it's interesting because you mentioned the game of politics. I think people are generally uh, familiar broadly with what you mean by that. But I also think about like the game of data and 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 how sure. the folks that are listening to this podcast uh, will you know have this this we all share the same kind of brokenness in terms of we think this is incredibly interesting we think this yeah. is the 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 most fascinating stuff but if we bring it up to who to folks that don't uh the conversation ends very quickly <laughs> well you know it's interesting there's been a really drastic change in the role of data and politics and i and i've seen this you know mirrored in other sectors as well but you know, coming up through presidential campaigns and having worked on two back-to-back ones, Kerry and Obama, and then sort of seeing how it's evolved since then. Yeah. You know, it started as a, as a niche for nerds, you know, like we were sitting in the corner, you know, with our, you know, uh, I guess people kind of looked at this like with our protractors and trying to figure out what, you know, uh, what's going on. But when one of the reasons why the Obama campaign was a unique opportunity for me personally and why it was think renowned as being so data driven is it was a, it, it, think back to that era, Obama was an upstart. He was a challenger challenging uh, at that point a number of other candidates, including Hillary Clinton, who were the established candidates. All the talent, all the gurus, all the experts were elsewhere. Yeah. And so we kind of had this laboratory where uh, people like me who were young and, and you know, had a point of view we could do things differently could um, – do what we were going to do without running up into a lot of big egos and a lot of gurus who this is the way we've been doing things for two decades. Right. And it was an incredibly refreshing experience. And we were doing things that people now were the norm, but at that time were radical, like deciding where we should put offices by the number of persuadable voters and the density of persuadable voters on a map. Like literally we'd plot yeah. zones on a map that you put an office here, here, and here. The way that decision used to be made was whose uncle had an office space that they could rent you for the least, you know, like it. So the, the backdrop created the opportunity for data to, to be at the core of the strategy as opposed to being uh, sort of in the periphery. Well, that's, and that's, that's fascinating because you think about back to 2008, that you really were at this kind of transition point where the, the, yes. the um, ability to access incredibly powerful data tools was coming online yes. right at that time as well. And so now all of it, you know, you're, you're able to do more with data. You didn't need to go spend a hundred thousand dollars on a server just to be able to crunch the numbers. You were able to do that on a laptop at that point and then be able to start acting on it. And I think as, as we've seen progressive elections since then um, you you see that that more and more people have gotten into the mix of being able to do data analytics and, and processing data and, and trying to come up with um, good approaches to the point where we find ourselves now where data we're we are swimming in data every direction we, we go in yes. and it's you know, there's a lot I want to talk to you about this, and so we'll start, let's let's start simple. We've been talking about elections. Let's talk. Let's start simple on on some of these topics. So. You know, in, in an election year, and this has been true as long as I can remember, uh, you know, you can't escape the countless polls and the countless, you know, quotes of, oh, who's who's trending well here and how are things changing and, and how what are the demographics and all of that. Um, you know, how you know, we hear these poll numbers constantly from different sources and all this. How do campaigns actually take poll informations or, you know, how the public feels about issues or, or what have you? And how does that translate into 
figuring out what to do. Like it's it's one thing to hear about yeah. a poll. Does does a good poll mean we're going to go invest less money in that area, or does it? How do, how does that all shake out? Yeah, great question. And I think the the thing I would start by saying is that in every campaign, you know, pays attention to the public poll and the stuff that you and I see that we see Nate Silver crunching on five thirty eight stuff sure. that gets reported in the news, whatever. All that public poll might be done by the Washington Post, might be done by Siena College, whoever it is, um, is sort of ambient noise to campaigns. Every campaign has hired a, a, if not, I mean, I think the Obama campaign had five or six pollsters on, on retainer doing polls in different states continuously. There, there were new polls, especially as you, especially when you get this close to election, new polls yeah. almost every day mm-hmm. in some states. And you're relying on, you're kind of like paying attention, the, the, the the public polls are noise, but the signal that you're using to make strategic decisions comes from your pollsters, oh, from people okay. that you are paying. And so you are making big decisions based on that polling. If you think about what any or any organization uh, worth their salt is, you know, setting KPIs, they're setting measurable goals that they track against, and it might be in a business, you know, monthly recurring revenue, or it might be the net promoter score of my customers, or it might be number of new, whatever the things are you're measuring, right. that all that a campaign cares about, really. I mean, there's other proxies we have for this, like how many donations am I getting, yada, yada, yada. But the number one thing that matters is, am I going to get to 50% plus one vote on election? Mm-hmm. Period, full stop. If you get to 49.99999%, you lose. And so every the reason every campaign invests so much in polling and in the, the, the data infrastructure that tells us what the population is thinking is it's really the only way of understanding is, uh, is, is what we are doing working and are we or are we not on a path to win. So you know, the Biden campaign or the Trump campaign is sitting right now looking at a map of the country, looking at the electoral votes for every single state. And they're saying, OK, we've got, you know, you know we're recording this in late September, so you know, 40 odd days until election day, um, which of these states are basically inside the strike zone and which are not? And where can I invest the resources that, I, you know, I've got, I've got these resources, I can plot them on this map. Those resources are going to be dollars spent on TV in a normal non-pandemic year. It's offices and field organizers knocking on doors and all that sort of direct voter contact stuff. Then there's phone calls, volunteers, digital ads, all this stuff. They got all these resources. Where do I send the candidate? Where do I fly Air- and land Air Force One to have the candidate do a rep? All that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah. You're plotting all that on a board, and you're saying, all right, well, I need to get 270 electoral votes to win. Um, I feel confident in these 240. i got to get 30 more. How am I going to allocate these pieces to make sure I don't lose any of the 240 that I'm confident? I have to keep that where it is. But I've also got to invest, and I can't. I can't just get those thirty. I probably got to get invest in fifty in that promo just to be safe. So it's right. campaigns are doing very complicated, uh, uh, com- you know, c- complex math on what is the cost per vote and the cost per electoral vote, which ultimately has how the electoral college has decided. In every one of these places, and they're saying, "All right, well, the cost." And we we ran, and, and there's you know, everyone runs these models. We're like, right, the cost of an extra you know, thousand impressions of digital advertising in the Tampa area in Florida is likely to yield us this many votes. It costs this much money. So, you know, where do I allocate each incremental dollar? And that's that, that stuff that was totally novel a dozen years ago. And now it is um, table stakes. It's table stakes for any campaign sitting there. They're doing that math. 
Yeah. Well, and, and, and hearing you talk about this, it, it, it's making me think about things that I've never really thought about in, in these terms before, because I think obviously an election cycle and, and a campaign, there's a, a you know clear parallel. You, know, you were talking about with, with net promoter scores, a clear parallel to marketing, right? Great. Yeah. But there's some really weird, unique stuff happening as well, because you have it's there's a, a much more direct sales process. So it's like you're, you're working up to the big proposal. Are you going to get the deal or you're not going to get the deal? And then yeah. you also think about this is all extremely ephemeral. Like you are going to be doing this and doing this and doing this until election. And then you are so done. Like no matter what happens, this is completely over. And I imagine that that causes a lot of strange byproducts. Like, cause it's not like we're hiring for a business that's going to be around for the next 30 years of my career. We're hiring a business that's going to be around for the next six weeks, six months, whatever that time frame looks like. And I imagine like everybody loves to focus on presidential politics, but I imagine that these things percolate out to, you know, other national races, Senate races, local races, even to some extent. I imagine that, you know, the my local mayor of a 50,000 person, you know, suburb probably isn't doing anything tremendously advanced, but I bet he's looking at some sort of data and, and thinking about some way of, of allocating his very limited resources to try to get reelected in, in our little neighborhood. So um, can you talk about, like, because you have a lot of experience outside of, you know, just political campaigns. And you've, you've worked in the White House, you've worked with, you know, government, you've worked in the public, you know, public and private sector roles. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, this, this notion of election when we're in an election season, everybody's thinking about this a lot. How does that parallel to some of these other things? And I'm, I know I'm kind of just all over the place, but, but what, is, what do you see in those parallels? You know, it is it is interesting. I mean, I it's I always described it as the dynamic is such. Imagine Coke and Pepsi, you know, competed for a year and a half for who was going to go buy a two liter bottle, which one, and they, everyone was going to buy it in the same day. And whoever sold one less bottle went out of business. Yeah, that's basically you know, they both go out of business, I guess. But but one wins, <laughs> and then they both then they, then they both go out of business. Like that's kind of what happens here: is these campaigns yeah. get built. And um, there are a lot of direct relationships to uh, the non the political world is an enormous ecosystem on its own, as you indicated. I mean, there's uh, tens of thousands of races uh, that will be decided, not just the presidential this fall. And, and there's elections happening almost every quarter in the U.S. for some state or local office. Some, so it's a huge uh, system. But uh, the, the I, I think having gone from campaigns and now working uh I spent quite a bit of time consulting in the private sector and then now working uh, to start a startup that, that serves um, cities, mostly, mostly municipalities, city managers, mayors, police chiefs, et cetera, our customers. And I've seen a lot of similarities. And I think one of them is you, you mentioned this sort of crossover, the sort of uh, relationship between the, the, the customer um, and, 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 and measuring and tracking kind of what the customer thinks I think that's one of the key observations that I've had. It's been really interesting to see how the how the political um, government and and private sector approach this problem, because everyone fundamentally has the same challenge, which is I need to attract people to my cause, buying my product, consuming my media, whatever the case is, and and understanding what people want. And following the lead, what we want, and 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 using data, not just 
uh, gut instinct to inform that and to track our progress, I think is something that has totally revolutionized these three different sectors at different times in different ways. So like we just talked about politics, you know, the, the, the advent of net promoter score in the private sector has, has had innumerable and vast impact in the way that giant corporations behave. Think about, I always think about airlines. Think about air, how bad the experience was of flying an airline, you know, 20 years ago. I mean, I think about growing up, I grew up in Detroit and we were talking about North Worst Airlines. Like it seemed like the airline, they could not care less about the experience of the passenger. But then now every time you fly, and I guess in these maybe we'll return, return to normal flying in, in a year, who knows. But uh, every time you fly, you get a survey after that asks you, how was your experience? How was the gauge? How was the flight attendant? How was the food? Was it, you know, all that data flows back into the central nervous system, that organization. And, the, and it, 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 whether you're the CEO or whether you're the baggage hand from the plane, you have this constant feedback loop of how good of a job you're doing serving your customer. And we know, I mean, because we collect this data and we can relate to other data, we know that net promoter score is directly related to the lifetime customer value of your customer. Sure. And so like the, the advent, there's a lot of things that came together here. Some of them are data related. Some of them are, are culturally related to these organizations, but it's totally changed the way these organizations behave. And they know they can they can look at you because of the data they are collecting, the database, and they can look at every single one of their customers and they can tell you down to a cent what they estimate the value is that you will spend on their product for the rest of your life. Yeah. And they know that keeping maybe keeping you happy because you fly in a certain pattern is you know 13 times more important than keeping me happy. And they will spend the money and the resources to make sure that happens. That's and, and I love the, the airline example because everybody loves to throw the airlines under the bus immediately to say, oh, it's gotten so horrible. There are aspects certainly that have evolved, but we, we like to focus on certain attributes. Oh, the, the seats are getting more crammed in or whatever. But do you also realize you can fly cross country for like $200 in today's money? That's you know, so so the, the the airlines have responded to their inputs and the data that tells them, hey, people want to travel more. And this is all pre-pandemic you know, patterns, but yes. they want to travel more and they, they don't want to pay much. And they're happy to travel more if they can pay less. And that's the number yeah. one driver. And, yeah. and that, yeah. you know, so to and I love don't get me wrong. I love to be one of the people throwing the airlines under the bus. I think they are awful a lot of the time, but I think you make a very strong point. And I thought that in fairness, I should at least highlight that as well. Yes. But, <laughs> and so let's let's stay in, in um, you know, the the kind of, uh, you know, broad, not just political spectrum for a mm -hmm. moment, because even though like right now, uh, obviously, we're recording and the pandemic is still, you know, going on, um, you know, COVID-19, we're, we're working remotely, we're interviewing remotely, a lot of our, our work is not in person as it used to be, um, you know, and, and everybody's constantly thinking, like, doom scrolling is now a term, like, that's going to be in a dictionary pretty soon, you know, and so it's, it, but everybody seemingly has become an armchair data scientist and they don't necessarily yeah. have training to be some, but, but as we mentioned earlier, we're swimming in data. There's, you know, numbers being thrown around everywhere. And it, and it got me thinking, it's like, is this a good thing? Like, is this getting us to where we need to be? Or is it with the lack of this, you know, understanding of how data analytics really should be, are we going, are we getting much worse? Are we making it so that being data driven is actually becoming harder because we're just, 
overwhelmed by data and, and things we don't really understand as individuals? Or is this a necessary step? Like the awareness piece, which I think we could agree is, is has increased, the importance of data has increased, but being able to do something about that hasn't necessarily um, happened as well as I think we would like. There's as much misuse as use, I guess, is my hypothesis. Can you react to that? What do you think about that? You know, there, there's two things that jump out to me uh, with respect to this period that we're in that I think have, uh, I think are the general lessons that I've seen in the world with respect to data, uh, but but seem to be playing out in a very uh, challenging way right now. Um, and those are, one, um, you manage what you measure. And having, uh, you know, whatever you want to call them, key performance indicators, uh, you know, dashboard, whatever they are, um, that are agreed upon, that we all that, that we all agree that tracking this as success um, are really, and having universal understanding and shared understanding, that's really vital. Uh, and the second is um, understanding probability is a real challenge for almost every person, including those who practice in the field of statistics and probability. And we're seeing those two um, factors sort of rear their ugly head right now. I think in the beginning, you think back to the beginning of this pandemic, uh, which I think for most, for, for, for many Americans at least, was uh, was you know, March 11th to me, that the day that uh, the president addressed the nation from the Oval Office, NBA canceled the rest of the season, you know, Tom Hanks announced he had COVID and no one knew anyone at that point had COVID. Like to me, that was a moment to speak. Think back to that period. And now you fast forward, you know, several months, you know, we're recording this, you know, six odd months past that, um, where we're all, as you said, we're all armchair data scientists. We're all fluent in our, you know, the, the, the R zero values and the, the uh, number of cases and the number, you know, the number of infections, whatever. I think the challenge is there is not, because, you know, there's been, leadership tugging in different directions from um, even within just government alone, from the federal government to state governments to cities and not an agreement on this is the one number that we should all be focused on. And when this number is above this level, we should behave this way. When it's below this level, we should behave this way. And most people who are paying a lot of attention are really confused on what matters. What are we working towards? Why am I like, no one loves wearing a mask. Why am I wearing a mask? It sucks. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no like, clear goal, and I think that that's um, you're seeing that play out in a really disjointed response and a disjointed reaction from the American people who largely um, like want to do good, want to. You, you see moments of crisis, the immediate aftermath of, 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 of the beginning era of this pandemic, right after 9/11, where Americans band together and all row the boat in one direction, and then you look at where we are now. Um, so I think it's like this is an area where data leadership uh, actually really matters and not having it leads us to this sort of chaotic situation. Yeah, I think you make an excellent point around the notion of all this complexity, all this chaos in, in the numbers with a lack of, of clarity and alignment on what is most important in those numbers. We're left to all figure it out. And that's why it is this kind of swirling of you know conclusions and, and actions. And why, when do I do this? When do I not? And everybody's maybe we can even assume everybody's good intentions trying to solve it. And that may be a stretch. But even if it was good intentions, you still come up with a whole bunch of different conclusions. And so I don't know that 
will be able to solve the data problem for COVID right now. But I think there's an important lesson here that I want to highlight to anybody who's listening to this is that we're probably also thinking about data in our businesses. And in our businesses, we do have an opportunity to say this number is the one that's most important. This is the thing we want to track to. And so when you start thinking about how are, how do you want to run a business with data, how do you identify key performance indicators and say, here's what we do. Can we get, is your company a hundred people or a hundred thousand people or a million people? Like, how do you align the entirety of the organization around something that can be relevant through the entire organization? And I think like your example with the airlines, it may not always be exactly the same number, but you should be able to look at any numbers in individual departments. Or if you're a baggage handler for an airline or you're a pilot for an airline or you're the CEO for an airline, you may be looking at different numbers, but they should all kind of roll up to the same story. They should all have that kind of tie-in and that clarity of action to say, if that baggage handler is data-driven and they are looking at numbers that are relevant to them in their specific function, how does that support the numbers that the CEO is looking at and so that that person is relevant in their function and, and, and do those all align. And so as data leaders in our organizations, how do we create that kind of consistency throughout in clarity um, at each point as well? And then clarity as the whole. Strongly agree. And I think that it all has to tie back to simplicity, simplicity and, 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 a, and a unitary focus and mission that data supports as opposed to around. That's great. That's great. And, and I mean, this is this is not what I thought we would cover in the conversation <laughs> before. But it's, it's fascinating to see how these things kind of come up. And, and, you know, something as what I think a lot of us think of as, as wholly separate is this whole world of politics from what we do at work all day long. We realize, oh, well, functionally, there's a lot of commonalities in this. Um, Absolutely. So and, and you've obviously done a lot in, in market research and, and a lot in, in variety of contexts. We've talked a little bit about some of the trends that we've seen, but can we go, let's go in more detail into like what has changed in the last five or 10 years in terms of, um, you know, things that people may not have necessarily noticed, but have actually evolved substantially, um, you know, and that might impact us either as individuals or, or in our organizations. Yeah. And market research is a field uh has changed drastically over the last decade and, 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 you know, market research in any sector, politics, private sector, which I, which obviously is a huge overgeneralization of a very, very diverse uh, sector, sure. um, government, especially. And I think a, a couple of trends. One is that um, the way in which we conducted research has changed drastically just based on like our human behavior. So the fact that, you know, market research, even a decade ago, even thinking back to the Obama campaign 12 years ago, almost every single uh, piece of polling that we did involved a pollster calling a voter oh, yeah. at their home landline telephone um, during dinner. <laughs> and you would maybe add in a little bit of a mobile phone sample to try to get that. And, and most research today, when you see, I would urge all your listeners, when you see a, whether it's a political poll about this upcoming election, whether it's a piece of market research about your industry, whether it's research done you know, by your company or by your educational institution, um, just to scroll all the way to the bottom and look at the method at the method section. Because one of the ways in which things has changed is we all know, like it, it does not take being a research practitioner to know that anything that involves calling people on a landline telephone probably is not gonna pick up the opinion of your average person. 
So methods have changed. And in fact, Pew, which is, you know, I consider the gold standard of public opinion research, um, has now shifted um, almost all of their survey research away from telephone research into, into digital research, research done online. Um, my company, Lucid, we do a lot of, we effectively do market research for local governments. 100% of our research is done digitally. Why? Because that's where people's eyeballs are. The reason we called them on the phone before is because that was how you reached most people. When most people move to having their spices in their hands every moment of their day, that's now the right way to reach people. Um, you know, upwards of 90% of American adults now have a smartphone and the average American checks their phone more than 60 times a day. And that was prior to this pandemic. So if you want to reach people, go to where, go to where their eyeballs already are. I think that's like one big lesson, one big change. That's great to know. Cause I, I was wondering, cause I'm, I am one of those people who I don't even remember which decade I got rid of the, the landline phone. Hey. So that's, that's been long gone, but, but even my mobile phone in the last few years, I've just basically stopped answering it. I, I don't yes. answer my phone unless the number's already programmed in my phone. So if you're a yeah. contact and I know who you are, you've got maybe a 50, 50 chance that I'll actually answer. Cause a lot of times I still don't answer the phone cause I'm in another meeting or I'm doing something else or I have you know family time or whatever. And it's just, it's difficult to reach people on the phone anyway. So I very rarely call people without texting first or what have you. And, and I find too, and, and it'll be interesting to see how this evolves uh, completely. But I found myself like when you would normally like even schedule a call with somebody, I'm starting to find a preference for video conferencing services that allow us to call in independently so that we don't have to, you know, try to reach that person and that person's still running back to wherever they need to be or what have you. And I think there's going to be more of that kind of asynchronous connection um, to establish verbal communications um, or video communications, um, you know, going forward, because it, it allows you to de uh, deconnect from your specific device. Like I hate taking calls on my phone. I love taking calls on my computer where I can have my headset and I can have my hands free and all of that the more we can continue to push towards those kinds of, of device relationships and, and be responsive to that. I'm glad to hear that the um, polling and market research has adapted to that long before I thought of it myself. So well, any, any business, any business of any kind and any government, frankly, government services of any kind has to adapt to the way that consumers behave and want to engage with the world. I think we all have choices now, many choices in how we receive information and that ripple effect is playing out through every single, uh, whether you're a government trying to get people a driver's license or whether you're a business trying to get people to consume your content or your market research trying to get someone to take your survey. You have to meet people where they are and where they want to be in the, and how they want to be reached. Well, and, and I think about like the, the, you know, media consumption side too, even like television is going through an enormous overhaul right now where people want to start to get some um, separation between those devices. And, and some of the weird things that have happened, I still, I still laugh that you can't get ESPN by subscribing to ESPN plus like that. You get other <laughs> stuff, but not the one thing that you actually want. And so like, we're in this shakeout period clearly, but it's, I think it leads to potentially some uh, business opportunities for folks that are out there because of some of those frictions that remain from previous um, paradigms in, in how people consume content. But I think also it's it's going to get us to a place where things are more loosely coupled and you're able to um, choose your content uh, consumption device or mechanism separately from the content itself. And I think we're, we're making progress to that, but it is a enormous overall. I mean, who would have thought, I mean, 2008, you're doing, you know, data analytics for an election. 
also happens to be the year the iPhone first came out. And it's yeah. like, can you even imagine that time anymore? It's so, <laughs> I don't even know what that was like anymore. When I didn't have a 12 megapixel camera in my pocket at all times, it was connected to the internet. Yeah. Wow. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I want to think about too. So we've talked a lot about, you know, we've talked about election stuff. We've talked about market research. You know, let's talk a little bit more about, you know, the, the individual actor and, and, and small businesses and, and mm -hmm. thinking about, you know, a lot of these things, you still data, compiling data, doing analytics, it still takes a certain amount of effort, research skills, you know, um, tooling, all of those things are, are you know, prohibiting to the individual to some extent, even though we're, we're inundated with data, it's hard for us to make it actionable, especially uh, as, as individuals or in small businesses. Do you have recommendations uh, or, or things to think about? Like if you're in one of these grassroots campaigns, in one of the smaller campaigns that doesn't have any funding and needs to do something, or in a small business, you're running a restaurant in a pandemic and you're trying to figure out how do I, um, you know, start to figure out what to order instead or what, where to invest the meager, uh, you know, dollars we have, you know, between carry out business, you know, patio dining, like those kinds of things. Is there, is there an easy way to start to become more data driven that doesn't require an enormous amount of knowledge or investment? Yeah, I, I think, and I, and I see this happen time and again, in business of all sizes, small, small and large. I think it starts uh, with, both top down and bottom up. And by top down, I mean, you you could conceivably go, and, I mean, people approach this and they think, oh, boy, this is a really complicated problem. There's so many different directions I could go in. Well, start from the top. What is my objective? If you are a restaurant, is it, you know, increase visits, of, you know, repeat visits of your existing customers, attract new customers? What is it you're trying to do? If it's a campaign, are you trying to, you know, get get attract new voters to your cause or trying to get the voters you already have to make sure they vote in election. What is the specific goal you're trying to do? And then what is the one KPI that everyone in this organization, that if you stop them, you're like, hey, what's the one thing we're measuring? They'd be able to repeat back to you what it is and where that stands today. That is ultimately real data leadership because you're putting data in, literally you're leading with data saying that this is the thing we all agree matters and, and everyone in this organization speaks the same name within this organization. So I think that's the that's sort of the top down. It's just just pick and start with one. Just start with the one thing that we are trying to do. That will often tell you downstream what is the data that you should be collecting. But I think it's also vital that everyone in an organization, whether it's a five-person organization or a 5,000-person organization, understand that data about, especially data about a customer or data about a transaction, um, has real monetary value. And the failure to capture that value is leaving money on the table. So if you, if th thinking in a political context, if you are um, having a, 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 you know, a political gathering uh, and you, you know, have the candidates show up and you're going to have, you know, hundred people in a room to listen to them speak, what is the value of capturing the name, email address, and phone number and maybe even the likelihood of their support for your candidate of every single person in that room. Is it 50 cents per? Is it a dollar per? Is it two? Because that helps you think like, this is a thousand dollar opportunity for me. So I should be investing in, you know, what, like, I know that if I have a hundred people, I can get 10 of them to donate money. You know, yada, yada. It goes with any small business or restaurants. Think, think, put it in terms of dollars and cents, because that 
helps make clear to everyone involved in making sure that happens that there is money left on the table if you don't do it. That's and and I, Michael, I want to uh, emphasize something that you just said too. Is is you're estimating. You're not going to have an answer necessarily to the penny of this is the value of this thing. And we shouldn't expect that that's going to be true in our small businesses or big businesses. It's it's an estimate, but it's a valuable estimate. And it's something that can be thought through and debated. You can swap in different variables. I often coach organizations, um, you know, get the algorithm right. Understand if you knew this number, how would you go about doing it? And then separately, you can debate what you think that number should be or you know, what, what value should we use here or which one should we try? But I find that if you try to do them both at the same time, like create the uh, equation and set the variables at the same time, bad things happen. <laughs> yes, yes, I, that, that is completely correct. And I think it distracts from um, how much better you can make things by just having a, a theory of the world and then saying, well, what if this assumption was 25% too high? What if it's 25% too low? It allows you sort of within a model to make that change. And I like, I just think about the simple, you know, if I, you mentioned the restaurant, I mean, restaurants are really struggling right now in this COVID-19 era. If someone shows up at a restaurant with a, with a friend and is willing to dine in a restaurant right now outdoors, that person is of great value to you as a restaurant right now. You know, this is someone who feels comfortable in this situation, dining in a restaurant, you know they're willing to spend money at your place of business. You know how much money they've spent. You know they've brought a guest. So, you know, your guest is as good as mine as what is the likelihood of getting that person to come back to your restaurant. But you probably have a pretty good shot if you capture their name and their email address, whatever, you know, what their what their order was, et cetera, of getting them to come back. And if you don't, it's it's money on the table. Yeah. That And, and I don't know why you did this just – triggered a thought in my head because I was thinking about like in that circumstance a restaurant probably isn't going to know some of the details about who that diner is there they may not even get their name maybe you know and mm -hmm. and you know the the overlay of what they could capture like if they had you know if somebody paid with a credit card it's probably not ethical to like take their name from the credit card and start creating customer record there I don't think that's legal but I'm not entirely sure but it, it got me thinking going down that path when I think about you know the the election campaigns um and and you know, people are donating and there's information being shared. And what I don't see a lot of the time, because things are moving too fast and everything's so crazy and you're getting inundated from every direction. I don't recall, um, you know, signing anything or, or agreeing to anything that said, take all my information forever. Like, how does privacy work in that world? Because it is not something I've ever really thought about before. It's incredibly complex, and it also interfaces with something you brought up earlier in the conversation, where these campaigns basically um, go out of business every November. November. Yeah. Um, and so, it, the way this used to work was, you know, campaigns would basically, you know, start from zero, build a house, and then burn the house down on November third, hmm. and everything, including the data, would go away. Um, you now see a lot of between campaign infrastructure that's evolving, largely in a partisan context. So the Republican Party has their own, Democratic Party has their own. Um, you see some uh, upstart play. It's created a space for, for players like ActBlue uh, on the left, which is a payment processor pop up. Um, and you see a lot of uh, uh, the parties stand in place to try to create CRM that last in between campaigns so that when someone becomes a candidate, they come in the door with a bunch of data, but it does create a lot of new challenges around privacy because the frankly, we didn't used to have to really think about 
because it all got thrown out in the trash in November. Yeah, well, and I imagine that I mean that that has implications broadly towards you know this this um, two party system that we find ourselves mm-hmm. in. Like barriers to entry into the political Absolutely. context become a big deal uh, in ways they hadn't been before because of the need to create these that you know last you know much longer than an individual campaign. So that's, that's uh, unless you're Mike Bloomberg, it's almost impossible you know to stand up an independent cam- or meaningful independent campaign on a national level today. And data is a huge moat for uh, for that. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. I mean, and that's what we were seeing, right? When candidates yeah. enter right now, they tend to do it with really big pockets, and and yeah. that's you know expanded from you know, that's always been uh, um, you know the case. And people that have are wealthy go into politics uh, more than those that are not. But but it seems to have expanded, and this seems like a good reason why that that would be the case. So data is a great moat in business, and it's a great moat in politics. Yeah, I can see that. Um, I want to give you a chance. We only have a couple minutes left, and, and I'd like to learn a little bit more about Elucid and, and how you've taken some of this experience in the past. We touched on it a little bit and what you guys do, but can you talk a little bit more about your mission today and, and what you're working on and how all of this career that you've had so far has led you to what you're doing now? I just want to make sure that the listeners have that sense of that story of this is how it goes from, from you know getting a start in, in the kinds of things that you did. Yeah, I, I, you know, Elucid was started... Um about four years ago, um, largely pulling the thread. I mean, look, look, we talked a lot about net promoter score uh, score and uh, the KPIs around, you know, customer satisfaction in the private sector. Uh, There's nothing like that exists in the public sector. Most people are, uh, feel not listened to by their government. Um, And there really isn't an effective way outside of, you know, your traditional your, your, your city council meeting or your, uh, uh, you know, your, your, you know, community listening session, whatever the case may be to, to have your voice heard, or there's an election every four years where again, you either rehire or fire everyone in charge in between those times, elected officials, leaders of the city department, et cetera, they don't really have a feedback loop on how good of a job they're doing. And so the, the idea was what if there was something like net promoter score uh, for the uh, for the public sector, right. uh, we started doing this in policing, uh, and of course, we've had over the course of the summer of 2020 um, a number of national sort of flashpoint incidents. We're, we're, we're in the middle of one right now uh, around uh, dissatisfaction uh, with policing or uh, challenges uh, with, with policing throughout the country in a number of American cities. Uh, and it's incredibly hard. Policing was a place we started both because it was so fraught with uh, this, uh, this challenge, but also it's a place where the entire model of policing relies on trust and a relationship between police and the community they serve. So if you think about it, even the 911 system requires you to believe that when I see something happen, that is bad in my community, I'm gonna pick up the phone, I'm gonna call these people on the other end of the phone, I'm gonna ask them to come and show up, and I believe when they show up that things will get better. That's a core underlying assumption, that relationship of trust, that I can call the police, they will show up and things will get better. Um, And that act is voluntary, I'm not required to call the police. And then of course, I'm willing to be a witness in the investigation, all the stuff that happens. There's, there, there is a relation, underlying relationship there, the quality of which is not just nice to have, it's a must-have for the functioning of this core institution of you know, our country. 
Uh, and so we started in policing because there was an, a, a real opportunity to make things better and provide data where none exists. Policing is, is not an area where we had to convince anybody being data-driven matters. Yeah. There's been a revolution in policing over the last two decades, um, largely for the positive, in using data to drive policing decisions. Like things that we would now consider to be to be uh, very elementary, like we should take all the crime that happens in the city and start measuring it. Is it going up? Is it going down? Where? In what neighborhoods? What time of year? And using that to allocate resources, that was like a radical idea 20 years ago when it began in New York City where I live with CompStat. It's now the norm everywhere. There's 18,000 police departments in America and most of them use some form of very elementary data analysis to understand how to allocate resources. So we thought if we could plug new data into that system on something they don't currently have any kind of measurable anything outside of, you know, how does it feel today, um, that we can potentially transform the way that police behave. And so we built this company, Lucid, to do exactly that, to provide measures of effectively consumer satisfaction um, in a world where everyone who lives in a city is a consumer, a potential consumer of a city service. And we provide this now to uh, uh, city governments from some big cities like Chicago and Seattle, Washington, D.C., down to you know smaller communities. I think our smallest customer is uh, El Segundo, California, a city of 20,000 people. Well, I think, I mean, and just hearing you talk about that, it, it, you know, we have a sense and we like to talk about in the data space, you know, we're, we're kind of lifeblood of business and we're, we're, we, we are kind of the, the finger on the pulse of what's happening. I think you've articulated that extremely well in that this is really possible in the case and, and data helps us do our jobs better, whether in the private sector or in the public sector and politics and, and you name it. There's opportunities that data gives us that we're just not going to get anywhere else and, and, and seeing how how that same, you know, general type of, of analysis information plays in all of these different spaces, I think is is fascinating and, you know, very apropos and, and certainly very timely, uh, given where we are in the world right now and, and the timing of, of this recording. So, Michael, I think that's all the time we have. But thank you so much for being on the show. This has been incredibly fun for me, and I'm sure extremely informative for our, our listeners. That's great. It's been a total pleasure to have me on Thank you. And thank you for watching or listening today. You'll find links and more information about today's topic in the show notes. Subscribe to our show on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. Visit algman.com to learn more about Algman Data Leadership and the many ways we can help you become a data leader. Stay safe during these unusual times and go make an impact.